This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. You are watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. And if you're listening to us, you're listening on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sanasi. We have Will Foxley, Wen Yo, and Adam B. Levine on today's midweek show. Adam, you're going to kick us off with some more news about inflation. I just love talking about this. Thanks, Jen. I know you Today do. we've got an excellent story from Coindesk's Helene Braun that shines a light on just how out of step the Jerome Powell-led U.S. central bank really is in their fight against inflation compared to past examples. The last time the U.S. saw official levels of inflation this high, the Federal Reserve acted with a lot more urgency than they are today. At the core of this issue is the Taylor Principle, which states that the real interest rate should be raised, quote, more than one for one when inflation increases. In other words, if you want to bring inflation down, you need to have a base cost to borrow money that exceeds that rate. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just borrow cheap money and invest it in something that inflation will push the price up in, which will then itself contribute to the price going even higher as others follow that example. Dan Moorhead of Pantera Capital recently posted a pretty revealing chart covering this dynamic from the 1970s through today that I think does a good job of illustrating this. Okay, so here we're looking at the white line is the real Fed funds rate, the gold line is the inflation rate, and the gray shaded area represents just how out of whack these two numbers are. You'll notice that this chart, which goes back to the 1970s, shows that these numbers have never been further apart. So this is actually a pretty big deal. Wendy, I'd like to kind of tag you in for first comments on this one. You know, we've talked about inflation a lot over the last couple of weeks, and it seems like this isn't a topic that's going away. What's your read on this? I think all they're doing is trying to manipulate mainstream and make them think that everything's going to be okay, when in fact, it's not going to be okay. I don't know how things can be okay when we have such a discrepancy on the chart that we're seeing above. People are literally hurting. They can't afford things. Rents are increasing. We're seeing issues with the housing market. It's a very problematic thing to me. I don't know how they're going to fix this. If they're going to print more money, they're going to raise rates. I mean, the issue that I'm seeing is when we look at the rates like back from the 80s and the 70s, well, really the 80s when things were super high, especially to purchase homes, the wages were different. The living style was different. People were actually able to afford things. They were able to pay rent. They were able to maybe not necessarily afford mortgages because the interest rate was so high. But today, people can't afford to do anything. And you can see it in the stores. So I don't know exactly how they're going to fix this. All I know is very problematic. It's upsetting. And I just want to scream at the top of my lungs at the people in charge. But more importantly, to the people that are watching, we do have a say in what happens. You guys just need to get out there and need to reach out to your local government officials. You need to make noise there because they have direct lines to the people that are up above and let them know you're not happy. Because realistically, at the end of the day, I believe that Americans have gotten lazy and we need to do better if we want positive change. And we're in a pretty, pretty big mess that is not going to be fixed overnight. And raising rates are not going to fix it. Lowering taxes may not fix it. Just a big problem that we have. And I don't know if we can get out of it. Cheery. Super cheery perspective there. The interesting thing here for me is the 1980s versus today, where the 1980s, they had the political will to make these big changes to the interest rate, right? Where they shot interest rates up. I believe they almost hit 20%. Just the cost of borrow money was so much higher. And that helped tame inflation. And now it's like, do we have the political power to do that or the political will to do that? Doesn't seem like that's the case. And the Biden administration is definitely losing out on that side just because they haven't been able to tame inflation. They haven't been able to take steps to do that. And with midterms coming up, it seems like there's going to be a pretty big bloodbath with representatives getting kicked out of office. Jen, I'll throw it down to you. 
Yeah, I was reading an article in the Canadian news recently that was comparing Canadian inflation to what was going on in the 70s and 80s, and it pointed to a lot of eerie similarities, right? So some economists point to the war in Ukraine now for the spillover effects when it comes to like the price of oil and food. The article was talking about in the 70s, there was the Yom Kippur War that was followed by the Iranian Revolution and the Iran-Iraq War. Canadians at that time were putting their money into the housing market. The markets were a little bit different between Canada and the U.S., and that option is definitely not available for Canadians, at least now. Our housing market is out of control like it is in the U.S. Wendy, to your point, I think people are just tired. I think, you know, reaching out to your local representative, is it really going to move the needle? I think people are apathetic. I think people are feeling the same way we feel right now on the show. It really feels like everything we're saying is like, we don't know what we're going to do. Is there really a solution? Is anyone actually going to listen to me? And I don't know that calling your local representative is really going to change anything, but I still urge people to do it because, you know, in numbers, we can make a change. It just, I feel that. I feel that people are just feeling helpless. I do have to add on to that. So I know that it can seem kind of mundane to reach out to your local representatives and most people probably feel like, hey, I won't have a voice, but I want to actually explain something that happened recently in California. So I'm sure most of you know who Brad Sherman is and he's the guy that's always yelling, Bitcoin is bad, crypto is bad, XRP is security, whatever it is. But the thing was, is we had a candidate, we had a pro-Bitcoin candidate that was running against him in California. And I talked about her on all my socials, Erica Rhodes, and big shout out to Erica Rhodes. But guess what? Nobody voted for her. Nobody showed up at the polls. So now we have this guy in office that is not pro-crypto, not pro-NFTs, not pro-Bitcoin. He's getting his pockets lined by the banks and people are upset and they're crying about it and they're complaining about it. Guess what? They had the option to vote for her. And if you couldn't vote for her because you weren't in the district or whatever that was, you could have donated to the campaign. You could have spread things out on social media. You could have advocated for this, but people chose not to. So now we're starting to see, we're reaping what we sow on a local and now a global level because we have somebody in office that is not pro Bitcoin, crypto or NFTs. And we're seeing all this negative representation being pushed out to the masses. So I just wanted to add that in there. I think those points are all very well made. I have a couple of other things I've been thinking about on this. First, you know, to Will's point, my parents, I believe, bought their first house in 1982, kind of the height of this. Their first interest rate on that was about 14% for a 30-year mortgage. But the thing about it that makes it really different is that the price they paid for that house was about $120,000 in California at the time, back in you know, the early 80s. That house today, you know, without significant changes, is now valued by Zillow at like $1.8 to $1.9 million. That's the difference, is that you can deal with higher interest rates assuming that your costs aren't already so inflated by low interest rates. But once you have that low interest rate period that allows people to really push up prices, that's why this is going to be painful, especially in the housing market. But I really don't think it's going to last. That's kind of the thing that comes to for me is that the reason why the Fed can't do what Volcker did back in the 80s is because the government has so much more debt today than it did at that time. And so they've been able to, again, like over the last couple of years, we've seen literal trillions of dollars be printed into existence and, quote, spent for things that might be really great, might be really terrible. We don't know. But what we do know is that the government took all of that as debt on our behalf for those of us who are based in the U.S. And so with that in mind, the question is really, what interest rate can the federal government afford to pay for its debt? You know, especially if the Fed is also going to stop being a buyer of that debt, which they have said that they will do as they have become a very significant part of that market. So I actually think that this is a much greater endurance challenge for the U.S. government 
to, you know, just accept that they have no way out of this inflation without making serious structural changes that I don't think the political system is willing to accommodate. Like it's bad news in some ways because certainly people are hurting and that is terrible. And this is a direct cause of the sorts of manipulations and the distortions that we see in the economy as a result of these types of moves. But it doesn't bother me that it looks like the system is failing in a way that will be hard to disguise because I think that apathy that Wendy's been talking about you know, I think that apathy goes away at the point where it's obvious who the bad guy is. And unfortunately, the bad guy seems to be the people who are making the rules for us. Totally, totally. No, just on the political will, right before we swap topics here, it's difficult, right? And the Reagan administration came in in 1980 on the point of taming inflation, right? And a change of the political administration gave them the ability to do that. Biden administration sort of was halfway through this. They inherited a lot of the inflation in some sense of it, but a lot of this are picking up midway through the term. So it's difficult to say if the political will was really there at that point. But let's move over to a crypto story, Terraform Labs. Korean government has made raids on seven different exchanges, according to local news agencies, with the intention of getting more information about Terraform Labs and the basically the collapse of that Ponzi scheme, Terra Luna. Adam, I'm going to throw this one over to you to get your take on the story. I'm always happy to see regulatory actions that actually appear to go after people who are legitimately bad actors, right? Like, that's always a good thing. I have zero problem with that. The look is, I wonder, I mean, do we officially classify it as a Ponzi scheme or as something along those lines? I think it's hard to apply that definition. I think the definition that I would probably use is more along the lines of a really poorly thought out project that significantly benefited people who are early but a Ponzi scheme is a little bit different in terms of the market dynamics around this stuff. Again, like crypto land has always had accusations of pyramid schemes and other things like that. Something can be a scam without necessarily being a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme. And it can also just be very badly thought out with risks that people are willing to take because it's not their money that they're actually risking. So that's kind of what I would say about that. But it is good to see some of this stuff. And I'm very curious to see what comes out of this, because I think that that's what these investigations could really show is was this just poor planning, like really poor planning? Or was this actually a malicious attempt to extract money from people? And it seems like given the jurisdiction of the company and given the comprehensiveness of these raids, that we'll probably get some information about that one way or the other. Will, do you have more information for us on this fraud claim? I know that they're saying that what's being identified as Wallet A was being managed by Terraform Labs. But do you have more information on like that report that came out? I think it was in June. Oh, asking me to dig back in the back for something from Sorry. June. Not sure I have it right now <laughs> on, my, on hand. But I mean, I do think just to Adam's point, there is a lot of confusion around terminology for these sort of things, right? Like, how do you know what the intentions of Terraform Labs or Doquan was? When we look into like the more specifics and the wallet that Jen's referencing, like there is some things that lead you to believe that there could be some instances of fraud or at least some like very poor decisions that make the whole project looks shady, right? And a lot of people made money out of this while a lot of people lost money out of this. So I'm interested to see how the regulatory regime in Korea, South Korea, that has been very pro-crypto in the past, takes out a lot of the exchanges or takes out a lot of the people who are involved in this in a negative sense. Uh, hopefully it doesn't come at the cost of totally crippling the entire industry. Again, South Korea has a very vibrant crypto industry, has a very vibrant tech scene. And the fact that one of the biggest flops of the last bull run came out of South Korea could lead to a lot of repercussions down the road. Wendy, I'll throw it to you. 
I don't know if we should call it like what you guys are saying. I don't think know if we should call it a Ponzi scheme or not because I don't think that we have enough information. Yes, we can track specific wallets that we have, but just because you can track wallets doesn't mean you understand the whole entire story. You can see what's being done, but you don't know what was talked about, you know, in some of these back rooms. So I just want to play the devil's advocate there. And also when we talk about different things that happen in crypto as opposed to traditional industries or corporations or other businesses, there's still shady stuff that happens though. That's a problem is that we can't just sit here and say, okay, crypto is shady, crypto is bad because realistically, look at all of these private corporations and what they do behind the scenes. Like we can't actually track where they're spending their money. We can't track government spending. And I would like to argue that the US government and other government entities are the biggest scammers in the world. So, I mean, I do think that Doquan was a bad actor. I do think that there's a lot of terrible things that happened over there. But at the same time, I don't know if we can really call it a Ponzi scheme. Adam? There are allegations. I mean, like, that's really what it is. Like, it's this great word that we use in journalism, allegations, which means that someone has accused you of something, but it has not yet been proven in a way that would allow you to be actually labeled as that. And so I think that's where we are. Again, that's what investigations are for, is to untangle exactly that sort of thing. And it seems like they're taking it seriously. So at some point in time, we probably will know at least more than we know today. But I think that we don't know much more today. (laughs) Wendy, to your your point, I think this is a good reminder that crypto is not bad, but, you know, some people are shady. And when crypto is being used for these shady things and these shady acts, it is so much more traceable and so much more often than not. Are we able to get to the bottom of it? So, I mean, I think that's the technology shining through. And of course, we have to talk about more government stuff because why wouldn't we talk about more government stuff? This story came out from Decrypt. Bill giving CFTC crypto powers could go to vote this year. So this is basically talking about a bipartisan congressional effort to grant authority over the crypto industry to the CFTC instead of the SEC. And this may actually come to a vote by the end of 2022, which I do not believe because we all know that the government likes to waste time and money. Did I just say that on air? (laughs) Yes, I did. Anyways, let's talk about some other key factors here. The bill, and this is straight from the article, the bill is going to be called Responsible Financial Innovation Act, and it's co-sponsored by Gilbrand and Senator Loomis, and will go before the Congressional Agricultural Committee because they oversee commodity markets because of its historic role in grain futures markets, which I think is kind of interesting because we have all this coming together of these different entities. I'm not even going to talk about climate change, but Basically, the new bill means, (laughs) if it gets approved, the new bill means that fungible digital assets, which are not securities, would be classified as commodities. Unlike securities, commodities are subject to fewer restrictions on who can invest. Also, it will include ancillary assets or tokens that are only partly decentralized, but still don't meet criteria of the Howey test. And the co-sponsor, Senator Gilbrand, recently said the Agriculture Committee is finalizing their bipartisan part of the bill and that there is some serious common ground forming. So great news, great, great news. But I want to toss this over to Adam for his thoughts. First, all the time over here today. Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) you know, like regulatory stories are just a real kind of stick in my eye sometimes. Really, what we're talking about here is two different agencies, both of which would like power over the sector. On the one side, the Securities and Exchange Commission. On the other side, the Commodities Future Trading Commission. It is a better bad fit for the Commodities Future Trading Commission, in my opinion, to be the regulator of record for most of these types of assets, because a lot of them really aren't securities. I think ultimately, rules will have to be made that cover the unique attributes, unique features about these types of technological digital assets, because they're really not covered in the way that sort of the current laws are written. Most of these laws were written, incidentally, back in the 1930s, 1920s, 1940s, 
you know, so we're not really talking about like even the modern era, much less something contemporary. So I think that, you know, it's a better bad fit relative to those things, but it's still a bad fit on this stuff. And really what it comes down to is this important differentiation between tokens that have a company behind them, whether they're trading like a commodity or whether they're trading like a, you know, a stock, or on the other hand, truly decentralized projects that don't have any of those characteristics. And I think that as we move further into this regulation sort of season, uh, which I suspect we'll get a lot of over the next couple of years as a result of these collapses, I think that we'll see a lot more projects that start to bias towards that because the advantages of doing so will become very, very clear. The disadvantages are significant, though, which is that you can't raise money. You can't have a company whose responsibility is to develop this project, right? So they have to be genuine, grassroots, organic technology projects in a similar way to Bitcoin was. So far, we really haven't seen too many of those yet. So I'm somewhat optimistic about this, not because of the thing itself, but because of the thing that I think that it will then cause to happen within sort of crypto innovation and anything we can do to, you know, apply additional pressure to people who are really creating illegitimate projects and basically just scamming people out of money, I think is a good thing, even as much as I dislike the way the government is and will go about doing it. Will, what do you think? Yeah, I'll give my quick take on it and hand it over to Jen. There's three things that are interesting to me about this story. One, that it's bipartisan, right? We have Kirsten Gilbrand of New York, who's Democrat. And then you have Senator Cynthia Lummis of Wyoming, who is Republican. They've co-worked on this legislation together. That gives me a lot of good feelings about where legislation for crypto is going forward, right? It might not be like this partisan slog where we're just having Democrats on one side, Republicans on another. But maybe there is a way for both teams to work together and create good legislation, fingers crossed, right? Another interesting thing about this is, yes, it moves everything to the CFTC, or at least some aspects of digital assets to CFTC, which historically has been more favorable than SEC. SEC has always looked at these things that, hey, we want to slam you, you're a security, we want to hit you with a hammer. CFTC has been like, no, these are commodities, they need to be regulated, but in a more appropriate fashion. So that could be a huge bonus for the industry. And then the last part is there's actually a lot more in this bill, right, than just uh, regulating something as a commodity or security. There's a lot of information about mining here, about validating. There's a lot of information about like classifying these things for different government agencies. A lot of the clarity that the crypto industry has been looking for for years is included in this legislation. It's not perfect by any means, but it is a huge step forward. And the fact that it comes from two senators from different parties means that it probably has a good chance of moving forward especially if the Biden administration wants some sort of win going into November re-elections. Jen, I'll throw it to you. You know, Will, when you said you got a lot of good feelings, it felt really genuine. I love that. I think that this bill (laughs) is going to really push the Howey test, right? I think we're going to see the CFTC and the SEC kind of argue over those four different points in the Howey test because the Howey test is, at the end of the day, left up to interpretation It was formed in the 1930s, and it was formed around land leasing for Citrus Grove. So we're talking about a very, very different thing here, right? And so the four points, I just want to remind our audience what the four points of the Howey test are. So it has to be an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit and to be derived from the efforts of others. And so even when I read those points, we can see how you can argue for and against a lot of cryptos when it comes to some of these points. And I think we're going to see that happen. And it's going to force some new regulation that can actually take into account what's happening here. So I think that this is a good thing. But Adam, I'll toss it up to you for final thoughts. Yeah, just uh, one point about the bipartisan thing, right? 
I used to think that bipartisan legislation was preferable because it indicated that there was some sort of consensus that wasn't just on a partisan basis. The reality is, is that I've now come to believe something entirely different, which is that actually bipartisanship in the context of the current makeup of the government is actually a negative thing because it allows them to do more bad stuff. So it's actually better if they do nothing, <laughs> uh, you know, even uh, compared to the alternative of working together to do something. And I mean, the perfect example of this is the National Defense Authorization Act that was just passed again recently. Bipartisan support across the board wound up giving the military billions of dollars more than they had actually even requested because, hey, why not? You can always spend more money on the military, even if we have all these problems at home. So again, bipartisanship, mm, I wish I felt like it was the solution. I really feel like the divide today is less about Democrats and Republicans and more about you're happy with the way that things are or you're unhappy with the way that things are. So I'm always on the side of pro-disruption. Jen, I think you've got the last story today. All right, let's move into the world of NFTs. So an AI-based startup called Optic has raised $11 million to fight copyright infringement in NFTs. The company is going to use the funds to build out an infrastructure and hire engineers that will build an AI engine that processes new NFTs minted each day and compares them against existing NFT collections. The tool then informs marketplaces, brands, and media companies about potential IP violations. So I wanted to talk about this because I had this exact idea last year. And this like engineer CTO type told me that investors will never consider an AI project in crypto. And I just want to say to that person, here is $11 million that disagrees with you. Wendy, what are your thoughts on this story? <laughs> I absolutely love that we're closing with this story because this makes me happy. I love IP rights. I love NFTs. I see the big potential in them for the long term, especially with creators, entertainers, and you all know that I love a music man. So yay, NFTs. But anyways, um, I think there was another company that was also doing this pastel. I don't know what's going on with them. But anyways, I think this is fantastic. I'm very, very excited. And I also see Polygon there, which shout out to my Polygon Moonbag, but I'm excited. I think that this is much, much needed. And I think that projects like this will only help legitimize the NFT industry because it is not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, I'll take it from here. I saw this headline and all I thought was NFT AI project. I think the Fed has got to raise some more rates because we're just still handing out money to anybody. Well, like, well, this is a lot. <laughs> this is a this is a funny project. Like, I'm don't glad you come for our crypto out. VCs? Don't you come I mean, for look them? Look at the back end too, right? Like, I can verify an NFT by just looking at the contract address on chain. That's Your will though. Your it. name is Will okay, Foxley. But but wait. But, but that's like the whole point of it. Why spin up so, this whole AI project to analyze every single pixel instead of just like booting up a small project that allows me to look at the address on chain? Like that seems a little bit simpler and it's already verified there. I, I just I, don't I get the it. Answer for you. Get it. Yeah. Okay. So here's the answer. The answer is that this is a proactive alerting method. And so you can Thank think you, about Adam. this a lot like how Thank you, uh, you can, Yeah, you can think about this a lot like how um, <laughs> when you're like on YouTube, you upload a video to YouTube or something like that. It's checking the audio that you have associated with that to make sure that you don't have any copyrighted music in that. And so on the one side, that's great because it means that a person knows if their copyright has been violated, probably. But the false positive rates on these things are huge. And that's, I think, an important sort of thing to keep in mind is that like, I can't tell you how many different podcasts and networks I've had where I've had, you know, perfect rights to use the stuff and where we've still gotten our account shut down as a result of that. 
And then it's a week's long process to try to untangle it. I got to say, I don't look forward to a process like that coming to crypto. And these AI type solutions really, like they don't learn, they just compare, right? And so that point of comparison is a little bit better than doing it without AI, but it's still not foolproof. These technologies really aren't there yet to be able to do something other than mostly annoy people, I think. (laughs) Some solid rebuttals, some solid points there, Adam. I think intellectual property, I've said this before on the show, is going to be like the main narrative when it comes to NFTs, especially as more brands get into it. There's two points I want to add to the conversation here. So the platform is going to have a scoring system. I think to start to address, Adam, what you're talking about, if you get a 95% score, that means that likely this is a derivative project or it is 100, well, I think 100% used your intellectual property. If the score is lower than, you know, Adam, to your point, maybe it's been used in a way that it's allowed to be used or only a portion of it is used. The other point is the team is really interesting. I believe the CEO of this company worked at YouTube in creating the exact solution, Adam, that you are speaking about. So I think this is really interesting. And I think the team behind it is one that could bring it to life. But Wendy, I saw your hand go up. Last thing that I want to say is I actually... I really hear what Adam's saying, especially about like, I'm on YouTube. And when you get hit with something, a lot of times it's incorrect. Like sometimes they'll demonetize specific shows or whatever it is, you know, content that we put out. But one thing I can say is I think that AI and humans can both work together to make these types of solutions work well. Like you need to have customer service. It doesn't matter how good the tech is. You still need to have a real human that is there that is going to review each case if it is appealed. And I think if we can kind of work together collectively, robots and humans, which is very, very scary. And it sounds like a horrible 60s sci-fi movie, but I think it's going to be good for the entire industry, especially with all of the bad actors in the space, especially in the early days. I'm down with robots and humans working together, coexisting. Yeah. They make tacos. <laughs> Do they? <laughs> I don't is know. Is there a robotic just... <laughs> taco restaurant? Should that I'm be I'm sure there new... are. I wouldn't go because I like to go, I like to go to the small cocinas and like spend my money there, but I wouldn't go if it was a robotic taco maker. I just said that for funsies. Uh, You know, I'll just, I'll just say this because I can't not the, uh, again, like the place that AI is right now is in a place where you can do lots of things with it, but you can't really do anything that doesn't involve humans to Wendy's point. So I really view AI as this empowering layer of technology right now. I'm building a company around it right now that basically allows people to enhance their capabilities with it there may come a dystopian moment in the future, you know, where that stops being the case and you can actually replace humans, at which point we have a different set of problems. But for right now, that's, that's my read as well. Jen, last word? I mean, I'm just thinking about, there's this sushi restaurant near my house that has little robot servers that I love to go to on the weekends. And so that's where my head's at now. So we can wrap this up. Thank you so much for watching The Hash today, everyone. It's been such a pleasure. If you're watching as you're watching on Coindesk TV, and if you're listening, you're listening on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sinassi. That's Will Foxley. We got Adam B. Levine and Wendy O. And we will see you tomorrow. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 